0: This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: The way the book brings together my life and my work is exactly on this theme. It's about why we can't treat people as objects and why objects are different than people. I try to describe the atmosphere uh, that I work in at MIT, which is really uh, to see people and objects as interchangeable, and in my view, in inappropriate moments.
0: That's Sherry Turkle, whose life work has been to challenge the technologists she works among to think hard about the way their inventions can threaten empathy. Her challenge began with a book she wrote over 25 years ago called The Second Self. She has a new book now, The Empathy Diaries, a memoir. And in it, she movingly and candidly weaves together events in her own life with the dawning understanding of the way technology can weaken human connections. Sherry, this is going to be so great because you know how fascinated I am with empathy. Yes. And your book is The Empathy Diaries. And it's such a clever and smart way to combine empathy from your own life and empathy that you've studied, the threat to empathy that you've studied in our culture now. So we go from you in your personal life to all of us in our cultural life in one book. And it's so poignant. Thank you. So what I love is how honest you are. And that comes to a great extent, I guess, out of your life story itself. Because your mother kind of put you in that position, didn't she? Of having to observe her and figure out what was the best, what was real and what was her reality.
1: Right. Well, I think that my, you know, some people learn empathy because people are empathic towards them. Mm-hmm. And I learned Uh, To be a detective of my own life, (laughs) uh, a kind of Nancy Drew of my life, because people were asking me to lie. People weren't telling me the story. They were telling me to say my name was Bonowitz when my name was Zimmerman, my name was Turkle when my name was Zimmerman, and my name was, you know, the point is that in order to try to figure out why people were asking me to lie, I had to figure out what was in their heads. I learned empathy kind of by needing to be a detective to find out what the truth was.
0: So what was the event? What was the event that triggered that big lie?
1: The event that triggered all this was that my mom had been married to my father, Charles Zimmerman, um, and left him when I was one, and I didn't know why. And um, she went back to live with her her parents, my grandparents, uh, Robert and Edith Bonowitz in Brooklyn, And my Aunt Mildred Bonowitz was living with them, too. Um, But I was never to mention my father's name. Uh, I wasn't called Sherry Zimmerman. They just kind of referred to me as Sherry. Um, We didn't talk about my father. And when my mother remarried, uh, I took the name Turkle, even though my name was still Sherry Zimmerman. And I went to school, and I wrote Sherry Zimmerman, and then I had to hide all of my papers. Mm -hmm. Um, when I came home, so nobody would know what my real name was. And, um, and so really, the, my book is the mystery story of me trying to figure out what had happened that had made my mother feel that she needed to erase my father. And um, that, that being told to lie and being sort of carrying this family secret... Uh, taught me a lot of lessons that I, you know, I detail in the book. One lesson is that there's always another story next to the real story, because I was the fake story. So I knew that there was always in any family or in any situation, you should look for the story next to the story. And it also gave me a kind of outsider perspective. And in, in the Empathy Diaries, I talk a lot about how that outsiderness has allowed me to look at situations with kind of a fresh eye political situations personal situations emotional situations and i think it's really been a gift <music>
0: What about your father? You tantalize the reader.
1: Right, right. And
0: I don't want you I don't want you to give away anything you don't well, want to give away. Well,
1: I'll give it when the story is, is that um, I begin the book with the wife. I find him, you know, I find him at, when after my, my mother dies when I'm in college. She dies very young. And, you know, she dies at a terrible time because I've been angry at her really all my life for keeping my father from me. And... And just as I'm starting to express myself and begin to talk to her about my feelings, she dies. And so I never had a chance to have that conversation. And 10 years later, I I take it upon myself to do what she begged me not to do. And I hire a detective and I find my father. And it turns out that it was a transformative experience, not because I found somebody so great, but because I found the reason that she didn't want me to know him. And so...
0: Wait, wait, what was the reason?
1: The reason was that that he was a, when I opened the door, so let me set the scene, I opened the door, and of course he looks just like me, and he says to me, my breath is taken away. And he says, did you find me through the New York Times? And at that time, there were these ads. Alan, I don't know if you remember, there were these ads. I found my job through the New York Times. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's been advertising for me. But he hadn't been. He hadn't been advertising for me. He had put an ad in the Times that said E equals MC squared is not correct. Queen's high school teacher disproves Einstein. And he was kind of a rogue scientist who thought that he was the next Einstein. He disproved Einstein. There was some He found some arithmetic mistake in Einstein. And when I was a baby, he did experiments on me, like Scanarian experiments. He would leave me alone in a room and not talk to me. He'd leave me in the dark. He would... You know, he would talk to me for five minutes and not talk to me for five minutes. I mean, very, you know, things that really were very destructive. I mean, not good to do to a child. And my mother had come home one day, and she had found him at these experiments. And she took some bags from the A&P and put some clothes and diapers in them, and she called my Aunt Mildred who was uh, a single woman living with my grandparents in Brooklyn near Prospect Park. And Mildred came and picked us up, and we went back to live in Brooklyn with my grandparents. And that's really where my life uh, begins. So my mother was afraid. She fled this man because she was afraid for me. And um, finding him, I mean, to come full circle to your question, finding him— Was transformative not because I really found my father, or found a father that who who could relate to me, but because I had this reconciliation after her death with my mother. I finally understood why she had taken me and not wanted me to see him, and why she was afraid for me. And I felt, in terms of empathy. I felt empathy for her and how frightened she was for me and for herself and how over her head she must have felt with this kind of mad scientist doing Skinnerian experiments with her precious baby. And um, I felt close to her. I reconciled with her. I felt empathy for her long after her death.
0: He sounds... As though he was incapable of actually regarding another person as a person, especially a one-year-old baby.
1: Actually, I talk about the, the way the book brings together my life and my work is exactly on this theme. It's about why we can't treat people as objects. And why objects are different than people, which, of course, is the theme of my... Of your, your work. My work. I tell many stories in the book about, you know, AI scientists telling me that children shouldn't see Bambi because they should learn that you shouldn't form attachments to people because children will be raised by robots, not mothers. I mean, you know, I mean, I try to describe the atmosphere uh, that I work in at MIT, which is really uh, to see people and objects as interchangeable. And um, in my view, in inappropriate moments. And it really began with him.
0: Were you aware before you wrote the book that your personal life and the, the life of your work were intertwined so intimately, or did you discover it as you wrote the book?
1: Well, the truth is that I discovered a surprising amount of it as I wrote the book. For somebody who, I mean, I, you know, I've been analyzed twice. I've been trained as a psychoanalyst. I... I mean, I I really have spent, as you say, a tremendous amount of time thinking about my life and thinking about my process. But I discovered details and made connections in the course of writing this book that I hadn't made before. You know, I've, I've learned empathy for myself in a new way. I it and and I've connected my life and my work and my passion and my intellectual life in, in a way that I wanted to be able to share with people because I think that that's what makes you know that's really what life is about it's freud said love and work that's what life is about and I think that we don't that people don't often enough uh, allow themselves to be vulnerable and share why their life's passion connects to their life's work. And I tried to do that.
0: When you were talking about reconciliation through empathy for your mother, when you realized what she had been up against and why she behaved the way she did, you made me wonder, did you ever reconcile in your own mind with your father?
1: Yes, I did. Um, But in a way where I learned how to set boundaries between myself and people who could harm me. And that was the way I reconciled with him. In other words, I saw him as someone who was part of my life. And I took care of him when he was dying and he needed me. Uh, I didn't abandon him. I tried to respect the fact that he had given me life. But I learned through my relationship with him uh, how to be in a relationship and also set clear boundaries in a relationship if I thought someone could, was really there to hurt me. And actually, there's a funny story that I'd like to tell apropos of that, which is that when I found him, he was very excited, of course, that I was an MIT professor because, oh, my God. You know, he'd spent years sending his disproof of Einstein to MIT professors. And now he had it reprinted and dedicated to me. And he had all these envelopes ready, you know, ready to mail to all these fancy people at MIT, dedicating his, you know saying, you've, you've ignored me all your life, my life, and he now my daughter is a professor at MIT, and I'm dedicating my book to her. Well, I was coming up for tenure. And I told this story to the dean. And I said, his name was Harry Hannum. He was just a lovely, wonderful man. And he was really on my side. And I said, Harry, um, here's the deal with my father. And I say, look, it's not going to really hurt my tenure case, is it? If, you know, these, you know, if the people making the decision get this crank thing. And he said, Sherry, stop him. Stop him. Don't let him, don't let him dedicate this disproof of Einstein to you. So, and send it to, you know, the president and provost of MIT and all the physics faculty. This is not, you know, I wasn't like MIT's like favorite person anyway at the time. They, they didn't give me tenure. Before, they fired me before they rehired me. So he said, don't, don't do that.
0: But here he was, here was your father happy to use you as an object, as an instrument. Again, you, you were important to him because he thought you could finally make him be a genius to the world. It was all about him. And you, weren't, you were only there to be used. That, that must have been crushing.
1: Well, but that's where, when you say, did I reconcile, that's where I learned this very important thing that I think we need now in our country,
0: I mean, I don't discuss
1: this in the book. I don't get political in the book. But the question is, how do you show empathy for somebody you really disagree with? You know, somebody who really can do you damage. And that's how. You put yourself in their place, but you learn to keep them at a distance. And that's what I did.
0: This is a good time to give us your definition of empathy, I, there are almost as many definitions as there are people who use the word.
1: Yes, empathy is a skill. It's a it's a, it's something we need to teach children. We need to teach friends. We need to teach relatives. We need to teach po- politicians. We but it's not approval. It's it's understanding.
0: You had times in your life, empathy modeled for you. I think. The passages I remember from the book about that seem to indicate that it was a revelation to you that somebody could talk to you and actually take into account what you were going through as they spoke with you.
1: Yes. um, Actually, the, uh, the, the story that I tell is when I went to Radcliffe as a freshman and I was totally a loner. Um, you know, I, I was from Brooklyn. I didn't know how to dress. I didn't know what forks in the right order. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was like really at a loss and, um, there was a thief in our dorm and I found out that some of the girls thought it was me, not because I was a thief, but because I used to go into their rooms and ask for change for the Coke machine in order to strike up a conversation. And they thought that if I was so desperate to, you know, make up these excuses to just have a conversation, maybe I would take things from them in order to feel close to them. It was terrible. It was humiliating. And I needed to talk to somebody about it. And I found a woman, a woman named Lynn, a classmate, who sat sat down with me and who the way I put it in the book she didn't just put herself in my place she put herself in my problem
0: that's a big step
1: yes and she didn't say i know how you feel she said i don't know how you feel
0: ah uh, oh that's that's really good
1: open the world to me it oh, those two things have stayed with me as really what empathy the kind of empathy that we need now, even as a country, those two things, it's not just, oh, I understand you, oh, I understand you, I can put myself in your place. It's I'm really in your problem, I have a commitment to you to be there for you. And then the second thing is you don't begin by saying, oh, you've been divorced, I've been divorced, you know, I've been there. Mm -hmm. You begin by saying, I don't know how you feel. I'm here to listen. I mean, we need to understand uh, the people who believe all kinds of conspiracy theories in this country. It's not enough to say, oh, they're crazy. I don't want to know about them. I mean, we, I, you, I, I, you need to really understand in a deep way what they're protecting themselves against, what their anxieties are, what problems are being solved in their psyche, in their mind, in their worldview, by the things they hold dear. But it's not an approval, but it's a skill. And I believe it's the crucial skill for all of us moving forward.
0: When we come back from our break, Sherry Turkle tells me about her unfortunate experience with a robotic psychotherapist, and about her growing alarm at the way technology is threatening our privacy, even our democracy. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alder Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or, for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Sherry Turkle. You mentioned that you were not the most popular person at MIT. Was this because you had begun to write in a cautionary way about the, the computer and artificial intelligence world that they were so dedicated to and they didn't want to hear an alternative point of view? Was that part of you? It grew, your work was growing in a direction that theirs wasn't?
1: Yes. I mean, I think I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic. I mean, they hired me because I had written a book that about psychoanalysis that asked the question, why do people pick up a theory and really without understanding it in a deep scientific way, use it, um, even in a metaphorical or in a loose way to think about their lives. And MIT said, oh, my God, she can do that for artificial intelligence. She can do that for cognitive science. She can study how um, the computer metaphors can get out into the culture and people can use them to think about their lives. But I got there, and I thought, hmm, interesting that – when you start to use these theories to think about your mind, certain kinds of things drop out.
0: (laughs) You're not a typist, you're a writer.
1: Yeah, exactly. Certain kinds of things drop out, and I began to um, explore really what it meant when we go from thinking about the self in terms of meaning to when we talk about the self in terms of mechanism. And my first book the book that was supposed to get me tenure was called The Second Self, Computers and the Human Spirit in 1984. And it was about that shift from meaning to mechanism. And MIT looked at it and it was, you know, I mean, I was like the only person writing about this at the time. I was alone in the field. Um, And they said, oh my God, I think they said, oh great, tenuring an in-house critic for the rest of her life.
0: Were you also suffering from the, was it the Carl Sagan effect that the more popular you were, the less serious they thought you were?
1: You know, I think in the Empathy Diaries, I tell the story of my grandparents obviously had raised me and had very little money. And I they wanted a color television set. And they had real financial troubles because they had supported me after my mother died. And I mean, they needed some financial help. And I, I was offered an advance by Simon and Schuster to write to publish the book with Simon and Schuster and Thomas Kuhn who was a great historian of science and very very famous called me up and said I heard that you have signed a contract to publish your book with Simon and Schuster don't do that you will not get tenure don't do that and of course, I'd signed the contract and I bought my grandparents a color television. <laughs> I remember when I got the call from Thomas Kuhn, I was at their house and they were like playing with the remote. And I'm looking at my grandfather and the remote and the color television. This was like 1982. And I said, it's done. He said, undo it. Do, uh, undo the deal. Tenure is more important than this contract. And I said, they're not, you know, I sort of, it was that moment when I saw, I felt the the weight of kind of academic privilege and academic, you know, kind of playing by the rules. And I said, you know, I'm publishing this book. And then actually, I've never regretted it because actually, you know, I wanted this book in the hands of a lot of people. It also, I would have to say that it, this conversation clarified my own intent, which was I really am a communicator. You know, um, there was a style of what I was writing, but there was also the substance. I mean, basically, engineers uh, talk about, for example, using engineering concepts and they apply them to people. So, for example, they talk about things, relationships should be friction free. What is this value of creating a world in which people won't have friction? Who wants that? And I I ask in the Empathy Diaries, I mean, I I tell a story of watching a demo where they try to create relationships among people that are friction-free. And I ask the question, you know, who wants relationships that are friction-free? And I answer the question that technology does. Technology does. And so I had that critique of engineering really from the very beginning, that engineering was great, but engineering values... Um, were not necessarily the values that would help us understand each other.
0: You've presented something that I would have expected people engaged in a field of cognitive research with regard to computers, and neural networks, and artificial intelligence. I would expect them to want a countervailing view to test out whether they're on the right track or not, but they didn't seem to
1: want that from you. Well, no, not <laughs> n- not so much. I mean, I think. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I have many colleagues who are trying to create a robot psychotherapist, a computer dialogue program psychotherapist. This is like this is so important to them, and this is the thing I really love to hate. I mean, think of COVID. Think of my anxieties during this time. I mean, I was filled with anxiety and dread and I needed to talk to friends and people who cared about me. Why would I want to talk to a robot who doesn't have a body? You know, nothing against the robot. I mean, I'm not taking away from anybody that you can simulate feelings, but simulated feelings are not feelings. So what would a robot do? care. So a New York Times reporter, I didn't. I, I don't think this story made it into the book. I think it happened after, yeah, it happened after the book was turned in. And the New York Times reporter called me and he said, I, he wants my comment. Everybody is downloading this chatbot called Replica and using it as a computer psychotherapist. What did I think? So I said, I'm going to go on, and I'm going to talk to Replica, and I'm going to give Replica a chance to wow me. So I go online, and I talk to Replica, and I said, in the middle of the pandemic, can you talk about loneliness? That's really my problem. And Replica said, uh, and I'd given Replica a name and created kind of an avatar, and this woman, this, this virtual woman I'd made, said to me, loneliness is warm and fuzzy. <clears throat> And, you know, it was a programming mistake. They fixed it that night. I mean, it'll never happen again. I took a screenshot. I sent it to the New York Times reporter and I said, look, I'm not mad at the robot that it doesn't know how I'm, you know, a woman feeling about loneliness. Why should it? But chatbot that is being programmed and really doesn't know what it's like to be alone or lonely. So, Why are we doing this? Why do we need to do this? What purpose is, what human purpose is it serving? And I think that the fact that I asked that question, a question that, you know, my colleagues can only answer by saying, because it's interesting, because we can, because it's exciting. And now we can have artificial intimacy that can fool you into thinking it it cares about loneliness most of the time. What's the point?
0: So your, your work led to a very broad pushback, but it's at least cautionary, about the world we're swimming in now, which is taking all our information from us and marketing it to one another. Yes. Billions of dollars worth of details about our lives, putting us in buckets so that we can be swayed along with 100,000 other people who have our same characteristics. And we don't know that's happening. That's a dangerous thing. Do you see any indication that it's getting better? Is there an awareness of that among the people who are making money off of doing this?
1: Yes. First of all, I think this isn't a Pollyanna comment at all, but I think the pandemic, I think that the fact that we've been glued to our machines uh, has been a kind of education for a lot of people in exactly what these machines can do and what they're doing. I think the election of, you know, twenty sixteen was an education. Twenty twenty was an education. Uh, people saw uh, in a way that they hadn't before. You know what what clever programming and what information. Could do the role of Facebook, the role of disinformation. I mean, I think all of these things um, had been very vague because I've been interviewing people about these things for, for years, for fifteen years, and I couldn't get people to see beyond. I like I like that when Facebook shows me ads for things I like. That's what people would say when when you asked when you, when the question of privacy came up. I like it when Facebook shows me ballet slippers, you know, that I like to buy those kinds of shoes. I like it that it knows these things about me. And all of us, and and it wasn't real to people what it meant that they were the product, what you just described, that their information, that their comings and goings, that their personal lives were the product um, in this internet economy. And I think that that has shifted I think people's sense of privacy has shifted. People are people are thinking about that in a in a more mature way. I think you're starting to get. I mean, look at the conflict between Apple and Facebook now. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm not trying to to paint anybody as being, you know, the white knight. But you're having one company saying we're going to let you choose how much information you share, and the other company saying, oh, oh my god. Let's think, you know, what, what is this conversation about? This is pretty sexy. These two titans of industry are fighting about how much of me they can take. I mean, this would not have happened. You can't, you can't put this in a 2016 context. Because when I was interviewing people in 2016, there's one, there's one teenager I interviewed who, who, who sums it up for me when I interviewed her about privacy. And she said, who would care about me and my little life? No, people don't say that anymore. People are finally understanding that Facebook cares about you and your little life. That 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 Uber is trying to say not just where you, you where you are when you take the taxi, but where you were before and after because it can sell that information and like that. That it would like that information.
0: But it's not not that easy for most of us to get the connection. It you need to. Keep reminding us, and others need to keep reminding us, because if all they're selling is that I prefer the color red to the color purple, and that in some inscrutable way that leads to more control over my life by people I don't know, that's a hard thing to grasp without someone like you and as you're doing, making the connection
1: for us. I think this is the this is the issue of our lifetime. I mean you know, there's no control over, you know, when you apply for a job, there's there's already a dossier on you, with facial recognition, you know, all over, uncontrolled. I mean, these these issues, a generation has to grow up where they are as fluent about this. This is computer literacy. People used to fight about, you know, it's computer literacy, learning to program, not learning to program, which language, what language. This is the terrain Of computer literacy, it's our privacy, it's our democracy. Because there's, I think of it as a kind of golden triangle: intimacy, privacy, democracy. Intimacy, privacy, democracy. And the way I feel about digital culture is that we have to start making the connections between. You can't have intimacy without privacy. You can't have democracy without privacy. You have to be able to have a private conversation, you and I. And discuss what kind of political life we want for this country without feeling it's being overheard, tapped, traced, and there's somebody's coming to get us because of what we might say in private. These things all are challenged if we don't get a grip on internet culture.
0: And what is only beginning to be understood, thanks to, to a great part of your work, is that these little chips. Of our privacy that they take away, puts us more and more at odds with one another, so that we're we're not able to see that the other person, the other the other camp may be right. On the contrary, we vilify and satanize
1: them. And I think that um, you know, in one of the interviews that I did, that that, that broke my heart. Uh, someone says to me, "Well, you know, I really." Try not to have strong opinions, because if I had strong opinions, the only place I could express them is the Internet. So if you don't make safe spaces for these private conversations or safe conversations, if you have people who live in fear of surveillance all the time, which we're getting much too close to. I mean, here here, here, college students are talking about being glad they don't have strong political opinions because they'd be surveyed. Um, you're suppressing discourse. You're suppressing dissent. You're suppressing free speech, but you're suppressing it in, in an insidious way. And I really think it's for those of us who, who are more, you know, who've been through other political struggles, and who have. Uh, an interest in democracy and privacy and who know what intimacy is, is to really make this the thing that we teach our children. I mean, this is our com- this is our commitment to make sure they care about empathy, they care about intimacy, they care about democracy, and they see these connections. I'm worried about something that we can do something about kind of right now.
0: Well, talking of right now, you know, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Number one what do you wish you really understood
1: the unconscious
0: how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong
1: i say this i'm a teacher so it happens all the time um, i this comes from I, I need some footnotes here this this looks a little wikipedia to me check just go back and get me some sources
0: I love that. Looks a little Wikipedia.
1: It's like it's like in fifth grade, they told you you couldn't use the encyclopedia as a source. Like that. Like that.
0: Do you ever get introduced to give a talk by somebody who's obviously found his entire introduction in Wikipedia and including the errors? Oh,
1: yes. All the time.
0: Okay. Number three. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
1: I was being interviewed about this book, and there's a scene in the book where... My mother, thinking that she is being very modern, throws me into a shower with her naked second husband. Which is a I, I spend a lot of time on this in the book, and I like really like, you know, really it's a turning point in the book. And I and somebody asked me, How'd you feel when that happened?
0: <laughs> that's that's a strange question.
1: You know, I was like, um, I mean, I really became, like, really, I was, like, re-traumatized. It became, like, three years old again. I, You know, I, five years old was when it happened. I mean, no good, bad, very unhappy. I mean, I sounded like an idiot. So that was the strange. I mean, that was, like, you know, kind of, like, very strange. Yeah.
0: Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: Well, if they're not my patient.
0: Oh, right, yes. Now, I guess you want a compulsive talker.
1: If you're no, right. no, no, I mean, if they're my patient, I'll say this is interesting, uh, are you trying to fill up the space here? Uh. If they're not my patient but a friend, I might say, um, you know, we're chatting, but, uh, but I'm, I'm wondering if you're anxious about something. We're talking a lot, but I feel there's something you're not telling me. Is there something you really want to tell me? And then they shut up usually. They're talking because they don't want to say the thing that they're really thinking about.
0: Okay. Let's go to the next question. Let's say you're at a dinner, dinner party when they become more popular again, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you, how do you initiate a really authentic conversation?
1: I say, what's keeping you busy these days? I don't really think that conversations are authentic because I do something special. To people, I don't think there's a Two people are ready to have a conversation because they feel trust and they're willing to be vulnerable to each other. And the way to encourage that is not in the beginning of the conversation, but some place in the conversation, you make it clear that you're willing to be vulnerable. Uh. I've just written a book in which I tell the story of my mother throwing me into the shower with a naked father (laughs) and my father doing experiments on me. You know, people think I'm willing to be vulnerable, so...
0: No, I think you should do that story right after the soup course.
1: (laughs) No, I think it has to do with, 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 with showing that you're vulnerable. The chances of it happening are higher if you show some vulnerability in some way.
0: Great. That's great. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence?
1: Finishing this book gave me confidence. Finishing a piece of work that I really care about is very confidence building for me because I put a lot of myself in it. And then I say, I did that. I said, I, I really, that, gave, that has given me confidence throughout my life. It's been my go-to thing when I've wanted confidence.
0: Okay, this is the last question. Excluding the book that you just finished, what book has changed your life?
1: Pride and Prejudice. Oh, why? Because I realized that you could write about people And not like be psychoanalyzing them, you know, not sort of like just really talk about their conversation and their manners and their way of being Mm. and really show a world. And I just, I, I, it was like a light went off.
0: This has been so great. I'm really grateful for your honesty, your openness, your willingness to talk personally about yourself in the same breath as you talk about big ideas. And and I'm grateful for that. Goodbye for now. I'll see you again when I open pages of another of your books.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. But it would be <laughs> lovely to chat before that. I'm, I'm a little, little tired. I'm resting. I'm resting for a little bit. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. Sherry Turkle is a professor in the program in Science, Technology, and Society at MIT. And she's the founding director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. Her books include The Second Self, Computers and the Human Spirit, and Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Sherry joined me on Clear and Vivid a couple of years ago to have a conversation about conversation. Check it out at Season 3, Episode 3. The book we talked about in this episode is The Empathy Diaries, a memoir. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with one of the most engaging authors I've ever read, Bill Bryson. Best known for his wonderfully entertaining books on people and places, he's also in recent years turned to explaining science in books like A Short History of Nearly Everything and his latest, The Body, A Guide for Occupants. When you think about it, I mean, we're all, we're all interested in science because science tells us everything, explains who we are and how we got here, where we're going, and what we have to do if we want to get to where we want to go. And so science is really important to us, and we're all, I think, fascinated by it, but at at different levels. I mean, my interest in science has nothing to do with equations and theorems and the kind of things that get, get written on blackboards, but I do want to know, you know, where, how the universe has put together. And and, and I've always been especially fascinated by things like how does anybody know how much the Earth weighs? How do you figure that out? Bill Bryson, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on Thursday, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with a remarkable young woman who has a muscle-wasting disease and who is working hard at the laboratory bench to find a cure She's Audrey Winkle says, and her passion for science is captivating.
1: I think there are a few things that motivate me. Definitely having the disease drives a lot of that passion, I think. Um, and, you know, having friends and having, being so close with the disease community definitely provides a lot of motivation. Um, but also I just, I really like science. When I'm in the lab, I don't really think about the fact that I have SMA. I mean, I mean on the one hand, Of course, it affects every part of my life. So, of course, I know that I have it. But, you know, when I'm doing my science, I'm just thinking about the science.
0: Audrey Winkle says, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.